2: motorsport magazine for the very best in motor racing
0: welcome back everybody to the motorsport magazine podcast and uh, it's a beautiful summer morning here in london hope it is where you are Uh, this week we have this month i should say we have with us one of the elder statesmen of grand prix motor racing mr patrick head who is approaching his fifth decade in the sport which is something of a record, I believe, especially in a senior position. But he has just had the weekend from hell, I would imagine. Uh, Two cars wrecked and a steering wheel thrown away in the Grand Prix of Monaco. So to have him here this week is exceptional for him to take that time. So thank you, Patrick. Um, Can I just get the ball rolling by um, saying to you that actually, if you were inclined, you could do any damn thing you like with the rest of your life, but you still go racing. Why?
3: Um, <clears throat> I'm not, I, I enjoy it. It's, uh, I'm passionate about it. And uh, uh, as many people would have noticed, uh, Williams have not been doing as well as they should have been uh, in recent years. And I think for both Frank Williams and I, uh, trying to steer Williams back into a stronger position is the strongest passion at the moment.
0: How long is that going to take?
3: This is a very good question because <laughs> we've, been, we've been promising uh, uh, returns and uh, disappointed ourselves and people for quite some years. So uh, um, certainly when um, uh, we parted company with BMW... Um, And uh, at the same time as that, at the end of 2005, uh, it gave the opportunity for Hewlett-Packard, who were having their own problems, to depart and get out of the contract they had at the same time. Uh, And that put us in a very weak commercial position. And. uh, I'm not saying that all of our weakness since then has been commercial, but it's certainly had uh, a big impact on our ability to compete against some other teams who at that time were spending six, seven, eight times our budget. The the ramp is slightly uh, less now, but it's still significant.
0: How much is contemporary Formula One about the money? Is it all about the money, mainly?
3: No, I wouldn't say it's all about the money. I mean, when we when we uh, were initially successful going back into 1979 and 1980, our budget then was very much uh, less than the competitors who were initially ahead of us. So it's part of what one's got to do is to try and... Uh, um, compete against people with bigger budgets and try and spend it more efficiently. It's inevitably the case that if you've got a huge budget, your um, the return for each unit of money becomes less as the units beca- as you've got more and more money, uh, and you have to start looking for, your, well, seeing differentiators which become smaller and smaller and smaller. So the thing is, if you have a smaller budget, you've got to try and overperform relative to it. Uh, And we haven't unlocked that um, key in recent years.
0: Before we get any closer to George Osborne, um, maybe Nigel Roebuck would like to uh, have a chat with Patrick.
4: Uh, Have a chat with Patrick? Well, Mm. I haven't done that since last weekend, actually. Well, (laughs) now's your your (laughs) chance, Nigel. Um,
0: uh, (laughs) Well, you were in Monte Carlo, so...
4: Tell me how how, um, how you're getting on with Rubens, Patrick. Uh,
3: very well. I mean, he's, he's a well-sorted-out character and uh, obviously in Formula One driver terms, although uh, Michael has returned and set new standards um, uh, for uh, not just performance but uh, age on the track. In fact, I-, I was asked to give a talk at the RAC about a few months ago and having heard that Michael was returning I thought I'd make a bit of a joke and say that uh, we were considering giving Nigel Mansell a call because he'd always told us he'd never retired and it did get a good laugh I have to say I'm I'm
4: I'm very glad it got a laugh (laughs) (laughs) it would of course panic in the press room but anyway
3: (laughs) but um, no getting on very well with Rubens obviously for all of us uh, getting better results on the track would make um, things uh, better, but we're not shouting e- at does, each other.
4: Does working with him <coughs> remind you of working with any other driver from um, from the Williams history? Um, I think uh, it's a bloody good thing that... Uh, am I allowed to
3: say that on a podcast? Yeah, yeah, it is. Is. It's a bloody good thing that uh, all, all people are different, isn't yes, it, really? Yes, yes. I don't uh, make a habit of finding... Uh, Great uh, similarity. He certainly seems to... I mean, you certainly know that he is... uh, He doesn't talk about it in any way, but, you know, it doesn't matter what problem... I mean, we have had quite a lot of problems in some of the practices um, with some engine things, once or twice a car thing which has meant that we've been a couple of seconds off the pace if you then give him the right equipment mm. for the next practice bang the time is there absolutely mm. straight away mm. he doesn't have to work down to a time no, but then no. all the top drivers are like yeah, that so yeah. uh, i mean if we if we were to give rubens a a red bull say um then uh, i'm sure he'd be right up there in amongst them yeah
4: well i mean you I mean, did, did win a couple of races yeah. last year yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um and what's Nico like? Is he as? I mean,
2: everyone's saying he's the you know next best thing since sliced bread. But obviously his luck hasn't really been on his side so far this year. Is he as good as we all think he is? I, I think he is. The
3: it's it's an awful thing to put upon somebody. But then <laughs> uh, but then he's done it by virtue of winning Euro Formula Three Championships, GP Two Championships in his first year. Um, so he's, he's clearly uh, very good. I'd say that um, he's had a few offs and accidents that maybe he didn't need to have and a uh, couple of times damaged his car in races, uh, albeit that maybe the car should have been more robust. This is bits of bodywork underneath the car by jumping over curbs and things like that that... Uh, um that has damaged his race performances i think uh, at least well i think three of his race performances so far have been badly affected by aerodynamic damage that's been done to his car either by him or by a a neighboring car in the first corner Mm. um so i don't think we've seen anything like his um potential yet no i'm still
4: convinced he's going to be very good what did you expect of michael did you some people were saying, "Oh, he's going to come back and he's going to pick up right where he left off." Did you did you anticipate that, or has it gone more or less as you thought it would?
3: Well, you didn't. Got to
4: remember, he didn't actually win the championship in his last
3: no, two no, years. It was won by Fernando Alonso Absolutely. in probably not the best car. And on, so, and on merit. Uh, yeah, on, yeah, and on merit. Mm. So I, I, I think. Uh, uh, and by this, I'm not running down Michael Schumacher. He is um, a, a class act in every way, apart from when he decides to park his car on the track to stop anybody else qualifying or decides to run into his opponent in the championship a couple of times that I could point to. But Both uh... of
4: which involve Williams. But
3: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in all other ways, he's a class act. Yeah. And... Um, So, and I think he's in there as a class act. I'm not not sure, I think, uh, I'm not saying he's not a fantastic driver. He is a fantastic driver, but part of his ability was to weld Mm. and create a very strong team around him, starting with somebody like Jean Todd at the top, and then the Rory Burns, the Ross Brawns, all of these people, which which many of whom probably only went to Ferrari, um, because... Michael was there. Um, So, uh, as with a lot of drivers, um, well, a lot of the very successful drivers, certainly drivers who repeat success, Mm. um, a large part of that success was his handling of himself and the people around him outside the races Mm. rather than just what happened in the races themselves.
2: Mm. We've been uh, writing all year about this generation of drivers probably being the best or probably since the mid '80s, I'd imagine. Um, would you agree with that? And and um, who have you been particularly impressed with this year so far?
3: Well, I think this young chap, Mark
2: Weber's is pretty good. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> we've got an eye on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of surprise about Mark's performances. But were you surprised? Do you think he's he's no? His he's name, he's always been quick.
3: Uh, He's always been very quick and very determined. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not saying anything derogatory at all about him because it was the case when he went to Red Bull, when he was with us, he was always very quick. But quite often in races, he used to make the odd mistake Hmm. uh, and go off the track. Um, Maybe that was indicative that he was driving the car a bit faster than it was capable of going, but he used to make regular mistakes in the race. Um, when he was with Nick Heidfeld, Nick always seemed to choose the best way through the first corner. And Mark somehow always used to end up with a car that spun <laughs> in front of him. So, um, and then you've got to remember, it goes back. You remember everybody was saying, on oh, Mark Webber's luck, you know, it yeah, seemed yeah, to be yeah, that somehow yeah. it, it, you know, he always seemed to choose the wrong place on the track mm. to be involved in mm. things. And I think. Anybody historically looking at it could say that some of the mistakes in the races um, continued into his first year at at Red Bull. Mm. Um, But as we noted at the time, I think early into his uh, second year with Red Bull, Sam Michael and I were saying... Have you noticed that Mark is not making those mistakes again and that's mm. part of the thing to admire with a sportsman isn't yeah. it? Uh, when, when, if he's got weaknesses that he recognises them and sorts them out yeah. Also
0: yeah. His, his mental strength must be exceptional because when you think about the time that Vettel passed him into turn one when, when Mark was on pole and he's just recovered. I, I think mean,
3: we're talking about Malaysia aren't we? Malaysia. Yeah. 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 We
0: are. Yeah. Uh, you know to recover from that and put it behind him and I think you're. No.
3: I think you're expect- sort of assuming uh, a, an extreme level of fragility, and uh, <laughs> no. I mean, I think drivers have a great habit. Um, you know, anything that goes wrong is always somebody else's fault. Um, you know, witness the likes of lovely bloke Juan Pablo Montoya or even our dear friend Nigel. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they do have the ability to clean the slate, even if it was their mistake. Uh, and I think that's very important in any sportsman. I mean, if you've got a long-distance runner and he, or, or a you know, track, long-distance track runner and he makes a strategic error, you know, to spend the rest of his career agonising about it would not be... Uh, very uh, uh, good, but I think Formula One drivers have a good ability to clear the slate, and if they can somehow cause it to be somebody else's fault in their mind as well, that's all part of the process of, of clearing the slate.
0: I must learn this. <laughs> well, I mean, it, was,
2: it was the mirror's fault in, in Malaysia, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you enjoy working mm. with drivers still? Or are they just necessary evil?
3: Um, no, I, do, I don't know where this. I mean, I think was it Frank that was credited with this statement about drivers being light bulbs? Yes. I think Frank is about the last person that uh, has ever actually had that view. He's mostly got on extremely well with yeah. uh, the drivers we've we've had, and uh, no, I think it's part of the thing. Is is um, working with the drivers is very much part of the interest and part of the challenge i don't do it quite as closely now as i might have done 10 or 20 years ago but um uh but i still have quite a lot of contact with the with the drivers and uh, they're all different and um uh, I think almost without exception and I'm not going to talk about the exceptions they've been extremely talented <laughs> oh dear, why not <laughs>
0: well we probably know who they are do we? <laughs> okay. um, can I ask you something about the, the overtaking working group because all of us around this table are passionate about motor racing particularly the racing part of it hmm. um, and Frank Durney who you know well is suggesting, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong that we need to have less mechanical grip, not less aerodynamics. What, do you have a view on that? Because I thought it, it was the aerodynamics that were preventing cars from following and passing.
3: Well, Frank, as you know, has always had contrary views, and, um, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure Frank could um, give us a very persuasive argument about why he holds that, uh, that uh, view. Uh, But you raised it, first of all, about the overtaking working group. Um, I think uh, it's quite clear that the brief that was given to the overtaking working group by the FIA to reduce downforce by 50% and to improve uh, the ability of one car to overtake another. Now, whether those two are connected is neither here nor there, but they gave those... uh, uh, instructions to the overtaking working group and quite clearly um, probably neither was achieved, certainly the 50% reduction of downforce wasn't Um, it showed really the limitation of a very limited aero study probably 10% of any aero study that would be conducted within any one team of anyone uh, and, Mm -hmm. and that very limited aero study was not done by... It was done by um, Jean-Claude Mijot at FONTEC, a clever guy, but it was not done with the view of how can I get round these... The the regulations were not written at that time. He worked on a car that he thought would be the sort of car that would achieve that. Um, And then I think the big... I'm not suggesting that that car... Uh, would have given perfect overtaking but it certainly had 50% or around 50% of the downforce Um, and then the problem is you've got to turn those limitations into the written word uh, with no loopholes or no... Uh, double meanings or no room for interpretation. And that was all done in a big hurry, mm. like a matter of two or three days or so. <laughs> uh, and quite clearly, it was completely inadequately, whether one's referring to double diffusers or yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the, the uh, car had no um mini barge boards side mm. vanes and whatever but there were some inclusions exclusion zones that were put in which were just extensions of the previous exclusion zones but they didn't they weren't big enough and they didn't exclude um those little uh, you know the little bits and pieces that have been nor was the front wings on the the front wing on the um uh, uh, wind tunnel model at the overtaking work it was it was very primitive relative to the types of front wings we're seeing now. Um, all you can say is a number of people, all of the people involved in the what's now the technical working group, um, have learned a lesson from it. Whether they're able to apply it <laughs> is another matter. I mean, I was involved in a meeting in, in Paris on Wednesday talking about rules for 2013 and it's it's very early days at the moment and still with the FIA giving the overall direction of what they're wanting to see um, and uh, that process uh, will have to sort of mature over the next few months in order to produce a specification for an engine and a car for uh, 2013 and, um, you know, we're yet to see whether that's... successful process. There's certainly good honest intent to try and make it such but uh, whether the people involved
4: manage that, we'll have to see. Do you think we're going to finish up with a a small turbo in the end? From what I understand,
3: many of the road vehicle manufacturers are going for smaller engines with uh, turbocharging. I mean, now with numerical control via software hardware the software is probably fairly expensive the hardware is uh extremely cheap but spread over a lot of cars electronic control of things is pretty cheap as we mm. see on road cars that mm. steer for you and mm. brake for you and do everything else for you but um the uh, and and the thing is with the turbo engine it um does allow you to play all sorts of games on road engines with yeah. the way the engine's running and fuel efficiency and sure. things like that and um, uh, I'm sure Frank Derney is of the view lovely bloke Frank I'm not so <laughs> but he's probably of the view that global warming really isn't happening and there's uh, <laughs> that it's all a load of nonsense uh, and I know there's quite a big um, uh, group of people particularly in the states that uh, think that Climate change is just uh, just a cycle completely unaffected by the internal combustion engine, um, but um, uh, anyway, at the moment it 's all the rage, so uh, inevitably uh, formula one is is going to go in that r- direction. The thing that I think is very important um, is that the I don't know, what was it, George Bush in his shock and awe or something? I mean, there's a certain <laughs> amount of... When you see a Formula One car or, or 24 Formula One cars going around Monaco, there's a certain amount of shock and I mean, awe. There is. And there I is. think that element has yeah. got to be re- maintained. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Strange,
4: though, isn't it? I mean, you remember in the, I mean in the late 80s when the, the um, normally aspirated... F1 came back. I mean, at the time, yeah. it was all, oh, well, turbos. turbos. I mean, yeah. they, they're passe. They've had their day. You yeah, have got to get back to real, the real world <laughs> yep. again. Yeah. And now here we are, 20 I think anybody who, who happened to be at
3: uh, Barcelona and heard the... GP3 cars going around the track. If if that's the way the 2013 uh, Formula One car is going to sound, then I think we'll be all going off and watching golf or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, golfers. I mean, uh, well, actually, actually, even
0: better than that is a live camera in a nesting box. Actually, yeah. All yeah. ah, right. Yeah. Okay. watchable television. <laughs> <laughs> Try it. Yeah. Um, mm. Okay. Because obviously, the, this being Motorsport Magazine. Uh, the oldest, the best, the original magazine, Uh, many of our readers and listeners are interested in a bit of history and uh, I'd like to take you back to Carlos Reutemann for a moment Um, a lot of our readers are interested in that whole dynamic there between Jones and Reutemann and Reutemann's unaccountable failure to win the world title can you you cast your mind back to the guy that he was, because I mean talking he was so different I mean, talk about chalk and cheese, those two. I'm a, it must have been, must have been a, an interesting time for you and Frank.
4: Well, I think for Patrick, the, the first problem is going to be remembering anything Alan said about Carlos that he can now repeat. <laughs> okay. well, wait, yes.
0: yes, but with modern technology, we can, we can take out some words. Can't we?
3: Yeah, well, I have to say, apart from, um, I think, after the Brazil affair, uh, um, I think Alan did... I think the bloke's uh, a blank was, uh, and the, the blank was four letters. Yeah. Uh, and that was he never. I mean, Alan was not a small-minded person. And once he decided he didn't like somebody, that was it. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. But he didn't spend the rest of the season repeating no, 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 that no. statement. <laughs> uh, he just uh, treated him. I don't think they ever exchanged another word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Carlos was a remarkable person, and I'm sure still is. I see in autosport last week that it said that he's not going to run for the presidency of of uh, Argentina and stay as a, a senator but he is a a, a remarkable person and uh Certainly, as you say, his contrast to Alan. I mean, if Alan was out on the track, he was on it. It was he mm. was you know if he was on the track, the lap time the car was doing was the limit of what that car can do. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and whereas Carlos, he would. I remember one time in Monaco, nineteen eighty. I think the year he won it. Um, the poor Neil Oakley well I say poor Neil Oakley Neil and Carlos Neil Oakley who now works for McLaren senior designer at McLaren um, the um, he was running Carlos and uh, out on the track Alan was pounding round, setting fastest laps after fastest laps and Carlos was going around like seconds off the pace and coming past the pits going droning past the pits (laughs) and I went down and gave Neil an earful saying what the F's your driver doing tell him to get on with it Uh, I don't think we had anything than, than hard coupled radios in the pits or something but um and Carlos went on doing this the whole time, and we didn't have telemetry or onboard data recording, so um he was he was sort of right down the bottom. he wasn't just at the bottom, he was like sort of eight seconds off the bottom of the times, and uh this went through the whole of uh the first practice and the whole of the second practice. Um, <laughs> And uh, after the second practice, I said, Carlos, what is going on? He said, I, Patrick, don't worry. It's okay. You know, whatever. I'm happy. uh, Whatever. So I thought, well, I'll let him and Neil carry on working. (laughs) Anyway, he did the same thing in P3 on Saturday morning. Uh, I I think in those days times in the afternoon and in the morning counted So probably on the Thursday he probably did do a time in the afternoon But I don't think it was especially quick And then on uh, Saturday morning he was doing the same thing going slow Saturday afternoon five minutes into the session Out goes Carlos bang one lap pole position just (laughs) like that And he was putting it all together he was doing bits of the track hard Yeah Uh, and then slowing down, doing another bit of the track hard and coming in and getting the car set with Neil. He would go out and just go out, come in, go out, come in, not do complete laps and things, Mm. but Mm. bang, out straight. And Carlos was a very... He saw driving a Formula One car and the whole process of the Grand Prix weekend as a sort of art form. Mm, and it absolutely. only gave him any pleasure if it was perfect. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't perfect, he didn't want to play. No,
4: no. Um,
3: no and true. the problem is, he couldn't get it perfect... No. ...enough times. But yeah. when things were perfect, he was brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant.
4: Outstanding in he, his well, time. Well, he had... A, I thought he had... A, yeah. It was one of those freakish talents. Yeah. There was a... In... in, in uh, Do you remember Monza in 81, when it was all turbo, turbo, turbo? Mm. Carlos qualified second. And I thought that was... By a long way The lap of the season I mean yeah. It was an extraordinary mm. Time and, and 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 Alan actually Couldn't get near it Yeah In fact He did have a broken finger Now I think about it I? <laughs> <laughs> Well I'm that a, actually So is, after the that is actually, actually Quite, quite a, a good hire. story
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yes Why don't you Not tell sure it? that I could tell
3: it but Yes <laughs> no, Well can. actually There's nothing uh, Too naughty in it But um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I seen that This, Yeah That was uh, Monza 80 probably Or uh, yeah, probably Monza 80 anyway. Um, now, we turned up on Thursday at the airport, Terminal 2, for an Alitalia flight. And uh, in those days, there were no or private aeroplanes or whatever. Yeah. And Alan turned up uh, in the queue, um, and he was looking very stiff, and sort of, you know, when he turned his head, his whole body turned. <laughs> he, he was looking as if it was something... It was, was tall and intents of purposes, paralyzed um, and uh, anyway, uh, after sort of uh, teasing the story out of him, it turned out the previous day um, that he had been with one of his Australian muckers in his mercedes I was say previous SEL. Night, previous
4: night i think maybe right, wasn't well it? whatever it
3: <laughs> wasn 't anyway no, it was in the daytime actually it was in the oh, daytime was yeah oh, was it, and he had cut up some ford transit van and then pulled in in front and then the lights had changed to red so he'd had to stop and this ford transit van came up behind him and went boom into the back of his nice shiny new mercedes <laughs> <laughs> so alan who liked his like his dead dad liked a uh, span, uh, liked a, a tussle mm-hmm. undid uh, opened his door and walked back to this van and put his hand on the door, opened the door and an extremely large gentleman uncoiled himself from the seat of this transit and came out in front of Alan standing at least a foot above him. And Alan, thinking, well, I suppose I could deal with you, <laughs> laid into him <laughs> to find that four or five other similar gentlemen climbed out of this transit and laid into Alan, who um, uh, I didn't actually count them all over his body, but claimed to have 54. Uh, bruises all <laughs> over his body. And I think he had a broken rib think, or two yeah. as well. And certainly a broken finger. But I he think. had the two smaller fingers of his right hand, the little finger and the next one to it, mm. were broken. One in two places and the other one in three. Mm. Um, I sp- <laughs> suppose when he tried to lay a shot on one of these guys, anyway. And anyway, they they left him on the side of the road. Um, the funny bit was his I can't his his mate was uh, a driver as well called Bruce somebody, Australian you'd probably remember his name but he when seeing in the mirror seeing Alan um, being laid into, instead of coming out and helping him lock the doors (laughs) (laughs) So once this tranny had driven off, the the mate, so-called, came out of the car, lifted Alan into the passenger seat and drove him home. The the funny, albeit rather sad bit, um, uh, in a way, also, was Alan had uh, adopted uh, with Bev, his wife, a young son, Christian, who I meet quite often Mm. down in Australia, Christian Jones. uh, And they had the... um, Adoption agency person round because they were planning to adopt another sure. child. And Alan right. came bursting in <laughs> through the door, <laughs> yes. s- swearing apparently, <laughs> and said, Bev, run me a bath. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, the second adoption was not approved. <laughs> <laughs> but I hoped and, and, and now to finish the story off because i 'm afraid it 's rather long, uh, luckily, you can cut it but um, uh, Alan uh, when he got down there, he got uh, carlos 's friend the doctor i can 't remember the chap from Ecuador or you probably remember anyway to bind up his two uh, to bind his two uh, smaller fingers on his right hand to the third one and mm-hmm. bind them all together with with plaster. Mm-hmm. But you've got to remember in those days, we had gear levers <laughs> yeah. in the car, gear lever on the right-hand side. Mm. And Alan said to me, because Carlos was running very little wing in order to try and hang on to the turbos, you mm. said. And Alan said to me, there's no way I can run as little wing as that. The one thing I can't do is a car that's oversteering all the way through the race. Mm. And, uh, um... So he was running a higher level of wings, so he couldn't qualify. The lucky thing for Alan is it started sprinkling with rain just <laughs> after the start of the race. Yeah. So he actually finished second in the race and, Carlos and, 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 was, and was very close up behind Jaboui at the end of the race. Yeah. He was closing on him quite uh, rapidly. But this was typical Alan with a couple of broken ribs, two broken fingers, <laughs> mm. nothing, nothing <laughs> slowed him down. No, no, no. <laughs> anyway, rather a long story. But, in fact, uh, the other thing about that weekend... <clears throat> But I rather think. typical, I have to say, racing with Alan Jones was not maybe
4: quite as colourful of that at every race, but it was that sort of... <laughs> at its moment. It was that sort well, of Well, it was thing. also that same weekend, I remember yeah. Frank telling me, not only does he show up, yeah. looking as though he's just been through a war, but he also says, oh, and by the way, Frank, uh, I'm stopping.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yeah, the, and, yeah.
4: and Frank couldn't believe that. This is September. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, who the hell do I get now? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. 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 And, he's, and of course, it turned out that was because of circumstance. That we was when kecky, you got Kecky. Yep. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Anyway, let's get back to the
0: present. <laughs> yeah, Even if it is less fun. <laughs> they, they, I tell you what, they don't make them like that.
3: anymore. Yeah. Well I have to say these drivers I'm sure they get up to all sorts of uh, shenanigans but they've got sort of managers and things like that so they're much more professional at uh, keeping their uh, any misbehaviour they might get up to <laughs> keeping it under wraps.
4: Well actually um, Alan Allen didn't make any attempt. Apart of from didn't. Kimi Raikkonen. Well apart <laughs> <Yeah>. from Kimi <them>. Räikkönen. <laughs> Now, Alan actually, I remember when Alan showed up at Mars, he actually gave a sort of impromptu mini-press conference about his experiences, so there was <laughs> 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 it wasn't anything that any spin doctor could have done anyway. No. <laughs> no. It's, a bit of a,
0: it's a bit of a struggle to get back to the present day after a, a really cracking story like that, I must say. But anyway, But I did want to ask you something, which I hope you won't find too boring, but that is, bearing in mind how long you've now been in this profession and that you are an engineer... I'm fascinated to know a little bit about the the modern era. Let's say the, the last few years is all about computers. It's all about software. It's all about electronics. It's all about aerodynamics. That I mean, that's quite a learning curve, was it or wasn't it, for for someone who is you know a sort of properly grounded qualified engineer in engineering, if you like, rather than software and electronics. And
3: um. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly you don't have to know the detail of the code for the software, but if you understand the protocol and the the um, precision of the order of what's being done, then it's enough as long as you've got a good good software guy that works for you. Sure. Um, sure. And uh, certainly in the when we were doing things like um, semi-automatic. Gearboxes, mm. which certainly um, John Barnard, uh, I'm sure, with assistance from a lot of other engineers at Ferrari, he did the first semi auto gearbox. But it was um, automating, uh, it was a fantastic technical achievement, but it was automating what we used to be called three rail boxes, i.e., separate rails for each. Um, Selector, whereas we had previously uh looked at the idea of doing a sequential gearbox using a barrel like a motorcycle at the time we were looking at uh cable operating it, which just required the cable the lever to go fore and aft, which meant right. you didn't have to have yeah. such a wide cockpit and such uh um, a lot of room in the cockpit yeah. um, <clears throat> and and uh i was pretty centrally involved in the uh that sequential transmission and its automation and and projects like the active ride and things like that so i think you know even though you're maybe older you can still teach yourself a bit as you go along in fact all of us um, yeah, hopefully yeah. are learning all the time as we go along so i think I've i've learned a bit but i would never suggest that i've ever sat down and Wrote any, r- written any software co- code or designed any PC boards to to manage the software.
0: No,
3: um, but I mean I was trained as a mechanical engineer at University College. Obviously, still learning a lot after that. But in mechanical engineering, you do fluids, thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. In fluids, is all gases and liquids. So you you do quite a bit of air. What would be called aerodynamics now even as part of a mechanical engineering degree. And and uh, certainly I was centrally involved in the acquisition of our first wind tunnel, which came from specialised mouldings. And when I'd worked at Lola Cars, I knew they had this wind tunnel there. Um, and I'd heard that they weren't using it anymore. So I think we paid £7,500 for it. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, we had to make... It didn't have a moving ground in it at no, the time. No. Um, but we had it to make and build. In fact, uh, Ross Braun was centrally involved in mm. the design of the moving ground yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for it. and uh, uh, But I was still quite heavily involved in the aerodynamics of the cars at that uh, time. Um, so, um, no, you, you, you learn as you go along. Um, the thing now that is very present is there's certainly a much higher level of structural approval um, of the car using finite element analysis, which has got many similarities to CFD as, as well, computational fluid dynamics. Mm. Uh, and that's not something that I do, but I still relate and work closely with the people that do that um, work.
0: Do you think, is the Virgin racing car an example of why you shouldn't rely on CFD, do you think?
3: Ooh, sensitive subject there. The, um, oh. it's, this one's got to be jolly careful talking to people that might call themselves journalists, so I think. And no, I, I, mean, I don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Will you count me out? I don't say that in a detrimental way, (laughs) but I I, I know one's got to be jolly careful because the last Autosports evening in last December or November December or something, I sat at a table where Mark Hughes from Autosport was sitting, and he said to me, uh, "What do you think about Virgin?" only using cfd and i said well it 's quite an interesting step, uh, and obviously we 're spending quite a lot of money on wind tunnels and model parts, but also cfd but I said if he if they come out and have a f- totally competitive, totally successful car." Um, then we'll obviously have to review the proportion we Mm. spend on it and maybe we'll make changes. Um, Three weeks later or some weeks later, there was the launch of Virgin rather than the car and and Nick Worth was there. And I'm told that, in fact, Sam Michael showed it to me on some sort of internet thing, but Mark Hughes stood up and said... Patrick Head says that your CFD approach is incorrect (laughs) Nick Nick Worth rose to the bait and and said something along the lines of Patrick Head doesn't know what he's talking about (laughs) so I've sort of been hooked into a corner polarized corner through uh, not that it worries me at all but um, but, uh, uh, but, CFD is a very powerful tool Um, I was Involved with the design of the Formula Two car for Jonathan Palmer, and that with the design of that uh, was only supported by a CFD study, and pretty much hit its marks in terms of performance and um, yeah. balance and cooling and that sort of thing. Uh, right from from the the off, um, we're at, certainly at a stage at the moment. I, I don't know anything about. Uh, nickworth cfd but these he'll be using a uh, a product a commercially available product like fluent or um, cd star or or um, one of the um, commercial products they may well be developing it on top of the the capability of the commercial product Um, uh, and i'm sure he's got very large computing powers supporting it Um, for us we still decide that we want to integrate CFD and experimental aerodynamics. For them, they're happy to use only CFD. Um, probably take another couple of years, whether one sees whether that in itself is a, an adequate route.
2: How how tough is it for the, for those new teams coming in cold and uh, trying to compete in Formula One? I mean, there's a lot of people saying about that their lap times are so far off, but that's got to be expected at this stage, isn't it?
3: I, I think so. Yes, I mean, I, I think it is pretty tough getting in. I mean, you've got to remember something like taking nothing away from them, but but uh, a large, very large part of the Lotus was designed in Cologne um, by people who had very recently uh, and even more joined them when Toyota stopped the previous year I mean in effect it was a large part or a good percentage of the Toyota Mm. design group so it's not quite cold turkey designed in Norfolk um, uh, whatever you know there's been a lot of input from people who were um, until literally almost the week before current in another Mm. Formula One activity but just getting a Formula One team up and running uh, what people don't see on the outside is the extraordinary logistics and the huge energy that goes into the logistics. I mean, I can give as an example, uh, here are we at um, Monaco. We Things were going for us at the moment reasonably well up till Sunday uh, when the cars left the dummy grid and we were 9th and 11th on the grid. No fantastic positions, but pretty much where we are at the moment uh nico hulkenberg uh got back in the car put his steering wheel on 10 minutes before the start of the race when he switched his ignition on there was a very large voltage spike uh which is not supposed to happen Mm -hmm. the the mes regulator is supposed to stop that happening but for reasons that i'm sure is all being fully investigated and um, believe corrected now there was a large voltage spike that put the clutch sensor which has a lot of electronics involved with the sensor into a i don't like this i better go into a recalibration routine so when he started the engine and lifted the clutch the clutch sensor was saying hold on a minute i'm not ready yet so nothing was happening so that when the cars pulled away um, he didn 't have clutch control. the clutch control then, once it had done its recalibration routine, came back. He pulled away. Uh, it took half the lap before he was told that he could take up his grip position he hadn 't quite got his grip position anyway, part way around the lap, unfortunately, he ran into the back of an HRT and broke his wing pillars, and the wing proceeded to come off in the middle of the tunnel mm. did 't help so we had one car with a pretty big accident mm. there. Um, Ruben's car it now turns out and I haven't got the final thing of it but uh, I was asked just after the race whether the accident was caused by the um, grating that came up it now turns out it almost certainly was and we've got film oh, really? off really? Lutz's car going up the hill off Antonio Lutz's Antoni- oh. uh, car and uh, it looks as if that grating lifted up and literally just tore straight through the tyre um, And um, so he didn't have a left rear uh, when he turned into the corner. So uh, it was the tyre that was leaning over like that. You could see
4: the tyre was flat before he hit the fence. Yeah, but But it was the grating,
3: because the one they, they... Pulled the. When I was told that the one that they had brought the safety car for was up in, in turn three in the yeah. casino square. It mm, was the one mm. going up the hill on the left yeah. that actually flipped up and yeah. went straight through Ruben's Tower yes. from what we can see yeah. now from the yeah. onboard film. Because mm. um, we haven't found any... We, everything that we've seen on the suspension has been an impact uh, yeah. failure. But anyway, um, we ended up with two... Very heavily damaged cars, and the interesting thing is the logistics. We we only had two of that spec of front wing, we only had two of that spec of diffuser, we only had two of that spec of rear wing beam and rear upper wing. Um, meanwhile, we're doing an upgrade for Montreal, which has a different level of downforce. So uh, after those accidents, the cars had to be pulled apart. Those bits were on their way back to the factory. Mm. Um, one or two of the bits has been able to be repaired. The rest of them have had to be remade while still trying to not damage our ability to uh, do the cars. For And those bits have to leave, I think, at the latest Monday night to get mm-hmm. out to uh, uh, Turkey. And um, from Turkey, the cars will be back into the factory on the Thursday night after uh, Istanbul... We've got a major upgrade to the car for Montreal, as I mentioned, with a new diffuser and some modifications to the chassis and things. But by Saturday lunchtime, everything's got to be packed up. They're going to be in the factory for 36 hours. And this sort of logistics is going on all the way through the year. Now, it isn't really seen that often, that these sort of logistics going on. Um, And... um, uh, that is one of the difficulties for a new team, is to deal with those logistics. Mm. And the bigger teams, I mean, some teams have got enough chassis whereby the chassis that do Istanbul will not be the chassis that are sent off to uh, uh, Montreal. Uh, but these smaller teams can't uh, afford to do that. No, no. So it makes the logistics far more difficult. But it, that side of Formula 1, although it's not as exciting as the actual cars on the track, it's as fascinating yeah, and as yeah. complex, if not more oh, complex, and, yeah. than the cars themselves. And the other yeah. thing
2: we don't see is, of course, I suppose work on 2011 is now starting to be yeah. kick yeah. in as well. Uh, that's so well think, um, yeah, that's well underway. What sort of stage do you start the 2011 car? What sort of time of the year? Um,
3: it can be as early as uh, February this this February this year. We started on two thousand eleven with the banning of the double diffuser. Mm. Uh, it has a completely different requirement on the gearbox and rear suspension of the car, and the gearbox is uh, the, the geometry of the gearbox that's required is quite complex to achieve so um literally all of our transmission department is working on 2011
0: mm-hmm.
3: and and a part of our aero department is working only on <coughs> 2011.
4: Patrick are you assuming for next year the F-duct will be gone and Kers will be back is that what are you working on that we are working on decision. that
3: assumption yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. I think uh McLaren probably understandably are quite sore about the F-duct being banned um, in that they are saying just because they came up with it the other teams have corralled them and sort of um, banned it. I think there's a certain amount of truth in that but then it's historically you know there have been many things similar uh, of either larger or smaller Mm. effect which Mm. um, have been banned and it's a direction that probably the FIA doesn't want Formula One to go in with drivers sort of having to no, rub no. their tummy and one. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, they. Well, they steer Alonso they, was steer actually their cars. no hands, wasn't he, at <laughs> yeah. one point
4: when yeah. he was <laughs> holding his hand there Stru- and f- <laughs> on adjusting something yeah. here, and nothing was actually on the wheel. Yeah. And many cars, he said he's
0: not a problem. No.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fernando but it, it, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, no problem. No, it's Fernando. <laughs> no, <Yeah>, he doesn't <laughs> need to steer.
3: <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it's a direction that I think the FIA didn't want to no. uh, develop. Meanwhile, it was a, you know, it's a clever thing that McLaren have come up with, which you know, Article 3 only covers limitations of the car and movements of the car. It's got nothing in there talking about movements of the, of the driver that affects no. the aerodynamic mm. performance. So McLaren have come up with something quite clever and I yeah. think the FIA will let them run with it for a year and, yeah. and then
4: close it up. Yeah. And do you think KERS has to be a, a common system? To all, or, or it isn't at the moment. No, it isn't. Um, And we are not. We're we
3: we've done our own KERS system, yeah. and um, we will be uh, uh, using that next year. So,
4: but potentially, uh, your yeah. system is is cheaper, isn't it, by far than the the sort of systems Ferrari and McLaren were using well that was what sam told me at the time he just he said you know mm. i have an idea of how much money ferrari and mclaren are spending on developing mm. their KERS mm. systems and i know what we're spending and it's yep. a fraction it is uh, very
3: different i mean when when we first got into kers in 2007 knowing what's coming up in 2009 we went to the Magneti morellis and various other companies to say could you do this for us mm. and they all said um you know well Lodged 10 million euros in a bank account here. I think one of the American companies said, Lodge 20 million dollars. Uh, we looked in the bin and it wasn't there. <laughs> so we thought, Well, we probably have to do this ourselves. So we've done our own uh, motor generator unit, our own inverters, and, and it's all been running on the rig for quite a long time. Mm. Um, and um, so, um, and this will be brought back in for use next year. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. Having this sort of thing coming up with Formula 1 keeps you interested, follows you up? Yes, absolutely.
3: It's, it's another technology. Um, in a way, um, there are a lot of people who probably, understandably, don't think that it should be part of Formula 1, but um, there's no doubt about it. Developing technical activities in formula one brings a, a great focus to things in fact developing things in motorsport and uh, i must do a little bit of advertising and in, in saying that our what's called williams hybrid power which is the exploitation of high-speed flywheel technology we've been doing a project with porsche mm. uh, and it's it's porsche's system but the storage uh, element is only a flywheel there are no batteries and mm. this is in their uh, gt3r hybrid and it did race last weekend at nurburgring and i think from it started three o'clock in the afternoon and finished three o'clock on sunday and until from 10 o'clock on saturday evening till about one twenty or something on sunday the car was in the lead and mm. um uh would have caused a bit of an upset but mm. uh the the engine shut down the main engine shut down uh, but the hybrid system was working fine, mm. and they seemed pretty keen on it, so uh,
0: this is a, it's this got its place. Is, it's absolutely riveting, this stuff, isn't it? Because it is the future. It has to be the future. And uh, Williams is very... Am I right? I mean, you're getting more involved... What do we call it? Outside d- straight Formula One racing.
3: Well, because we identified the flywheel technology as being suitable for Formula One... Uh, in 2007, we ended up being the main customer for what was then AHP, Automotive Hybrid Power. Um, and we ended up being almost their sole um, income. So in the process of that, it became <coughs> Williams Hybrid Power and moved to a site within our facility – uh, it actually is a, it's run commercially as a completely independent company um and uh you know one can see the formula one buffs sort of reaching their hand up for yawning but uh, no, uh it not. no it's got it's got great application in uh buses trams uh inner city railways and in some automotive applications and i think the sort of relative success of the system is i mean it's quite high powered system 120 kilowatts or about 160 horsepower mm. in the uh, in the uh, porsche gt3 Amazing. um that could well find its way into le mans racing as well that mm. type of that type of um um thing so it is a it's an independent uh, company whose accounts are done completely separate from mm. williams um for various reasons to do with refuelling. Um, now that we're not refuelling, uh, the, the position for the flywheel in our uh, 2009 car was rather oddly right in the middle of the fuel tank. Um, obviously, the fuel tank is a unit like a horseshoe that goes round it. Um, now, with no refuelling, uh, it's pretty difficult to locate... The flywheel there and because of the packaging of a Formula One car and the amount of cooling it needs it's very difficult to position the flywheel on the side um, so the lack of refueling means that probably we won't be using the flywheel in Formula One uh, because obviously with lithium-ion batteries you can they're cells and you can pack them into any shape you yeah. want
0: yeah.
3: Um, so that's more appropriate for Formula One
4: in 2011. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. Patrick, H- have you had to some degree to rethink your attitude to, to Formula One in the sense that I, I, you always used to say, and I w- must say I always used to think you were on the nail, you used, to, in fact, sometimes to get quite sort of. I'm s- glad this. I'm wondering what I used to say. <laughs> we used to say <laughs> Formula One doesn't need to defend itself. It doesn't <clears throat> need to be the future for road cars and everything else. It, it's, it has a perfect right to exist as an entity on its own. I mean, it has a changing world obliged you to sort of change your, your I thinking somehow? I don't think I have a different view about Formula One. I
3: mean... Um and as we well know in the sort of green world there's a lot of people that try, uh, companies that are trying to cloak themselves in a <coughs> in a, a a green overcoat that probably underneath <laughs> have no right to do so mm. uh but it's the way to be at the moment and and many of the companies that we talk to as suspense uh, potential sponsors um i mean uh, i i am fully um you know uh, I, I can understand the problem. It's not as if I don't uh, um, consider global warming. Uh, it, it is a problem. What what's exactly is causing it is a different matter, but it is a, a, a serious problem. And I, 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 I do think that road cars are extremely wasteful and there's plenty of room for improvement there. When you look <coughs> at Formula One itself, um, it can easily be picked out for... Attack, but if you actually put all of the fuel used by a Formula One car in the whole of the February testing, uh, the whole of the Young Driver December testing and all the Grand Prix practices and all the Grand Prixs for all the cars, it would barely get a 747, one 747 (laughs) across the Atlantic. Uh, And if you put the many, many thousands of 747 flights, I'm sure quite a lot of them are actually empty. Yes, as I'm (laughs) saying, yes, sure. In just repositioning the planes and getting them back where they want them to be. So to point a finger at Formula One as an activity which does damage to the world... It's an easy target, isn't it? Is, uh, but it's completely and utterly inappropriate. Yeah. Um. Uh, as we well know when the British Grand Prix comes along, the major part of the damage in terms of global warming will be done by the cars that turn up for the spectators, in which case you might just as easily criticise a horse race or a hockey match or a rugby match or or whatever. Um, uh, There's an awful lot of hypocrisy Mm. uh, involved in the world of global warming. Meanwhile, that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a problem and when you come to road vehicles, I'm fully in support of all these pressures to get the grams of co2 per kilometer down Mm -hmm. if formula one by its focus on technology and the speed of which things happen can contribute to that happening faster then then fine but when people attack formula one individually as an activity that contributes to global warming then i think they're talking an awful lot of tosh
0: Good defence if I may say so <laughs> Good solid defense like to um, sad- No swearing there <laughs> no Sadly we're running out of time um, I personally could sit here a lot longer But anyway um, One last question Round the table for Patrick Head before we go
2: I mean obviously It's still pretty early in the season But if you had to put money on one, one Driver and team for this, this Year's Championship who would it be?
3: The, um, it's going to be interesting to see whether the Red Bull as a car has got a technical leadership, which, I mean, quite clearly it has a technical leadership for a car that's qualified on uh, in pole position for all six races so far and occupied the front row, I don't know how many times, three, three times or something, two or three times. Um, it, it's definitely got a technical lead. Whether that technical lead can be equaled or overcome during the season, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know the upgrades that we've got, uh, and I'm sure Ferrari and uh, Mercedes and McLaren have got, I mean, major upgrades coming to their car during the year. Um, But if you look at it as it is now, you'd have to say that Red Bull have got a technical lead, that it's difficult to think of the champion coming from other than their two drivers um mark webbers on a sweet run for the last two races he's a pretty tough character um quite likely he's going to keep that going but i don't think sebastian vettel's a pushover uh and uh i see lots of magazines who were lauding him um a while ago, are now sort of saying, you know, almost Red Bull are going to be looking around for a new driver, or, you know, maybe not quite that far. But uh, Formula One is certainly uh, one of the activities that you can go from hero to zero very, very quickly. Um, but I think Vettel is a very class act. So, personally, I think the champion is going to come from uh, one of the two Red Bull drivers, and I don't think that that requires them. You know, much brain power to oh. see that. Um, could be wrong, but that's, that's the way it looks at the moment. And um, so between Mark and Sebastian Vettel, I think it's a close run thing. But if we could predict who is going to be champion now, it'd be pretty damn boring, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Adrian, you is given a lot of credit for the Red Bull for obvious reasons. What yeah. difference does an individual make these days to Form 1 team?
3: I'm sure um, I I have no doubt that Adrian is the principal architect of the car Um, but having worked with Adrian for seven or eight years at Williams there's no way Adrian would have been getting in and solving all the detailed design once he said uh, okay I want a pull rod suspension and a and tuck it all in there. He would have left other people. I mean, I'm for sure, he will have had a look at how they're getting on and, and decided, I mean, Adrian is not just an aerodynamicist. He's got a good um, general knowledge of race cars, but he wouldn't have got involved in solving the detail problems of that. So I think uh, a lot of credit, I would assume... Uh, should go to Christian Horner because I think as McLaren fan taking nothing away from Adrian but if you actually look rawly at Adrian's time at McLaren um, relative to his capability it wasn't really that successful beyond the 98, 99, a lot of which... I mean, the mm. car was good. Mm. Uh, I, w- I certainly would not want to take nothing away from Adrian, but they had a massive advantage with that Bridgestone Tower in mm. uh, yeah. mm. uh, 98, 99, mm. um, and when Goodyear was struggling to keep up, and then, of course, Michelin came in the early days. But through the sort of early 2000s, I, I don't think... Um, you know, they didn't win another championship to win. 2000. They, were, they were competitive in seven and eight, no doubt about it. But there were some quite lean years yeah, when right. McLaren was there and uh, when uh, Adrian was there at McLaren. So the, the thing is to uh, integrate Adrian's undoubted talent into a team... Is not necessarily easy, and I wouldn't say McLaren Mm. found the way to do it all the time that he was there, Um, but certainly uh, Red Bull have done it successfully, and one has to put a lot of the credit for that down to Christian Horner to manage to build a team where you use the special talent of Adrian Newey, but build all the other people and keep them happy because i'm sure there's quite a few people there who are not necessarily that happy when they see all of the credit pretty much 100 percent put down to adrian on the um you so so christian horner has got to keep them happy as well while while they work in this environment Mm. where it's all put to adrian's door Mm.
0: Mm. Okay, thank you very Meanwhile, much.
3: Meanwhile, okay. we'd be very happy to have him back at Williams. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, I, that
0: was going to be my last question, but it's... Sort of <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay, do you... Uh, I'm going to ask you, whether you do you feel, in retrospect, you should have tried harder to keep him, or not? Um,
3: I think, at the time, he was being offered a situation and financial reward that we were unable to compete with, and the one thing in Formula One and many other activities as you don't look backwards.
0: Sure. Yeah. You do like um, things to be good value for money, though. Maybe Michael Schumacher will be on a cut-price deal within the next couple of years.
3: No, I think we'll go for Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nigel's arrived. Bring back, bring back the good times. Well, I think this, this is this is this is probably
0: a very good moment to go, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well we'll see you next month. And uh, very sorry we didn't get round to all your questions that you sent into us. Just not possible today, but I hope you enjoyed it. Bye.
2: Motorsport Magazine for the very best in motor racing.